which I could or could not say. Even I mean, I had I had uh, seen animals that had been poisoned with rat poison, hemorrhaging and dying, bleeding, looking up at me, and I, you know, I had had to hold a lamb while a veterinarian killed it. I had held sheep while their throats were cut. I had finally become half crazed with horror and grief at the, at the state of the world. I was looking for some enlightenment. Hey, dickheads, like a pink laser beam of truth beaming from across the country to your brain hole. We are your personal dickheads. We have gotten on our bicycle and are riding across the apocalypse to chase down the, knee the legless, armless man. So, whatever. Anyways... Uh, we're here to talk about Deus Iri. Iri? Iray. Iray. Okay, you knew I was going to struggle with that. Um, Co-written with Roger Zelazny. And as such, we have a special guest because none of the dickheads are particularly huge Roger Zelazny fans. So we needed to call upon and draft a Zelazny expert. And we found F. Brett Cox who has literally written a book on Roger Zelazny, which he's going to hold up for the YouTube viewers. The first of the Modern Masters of Science Fiction uh, series from the University of Illinois. But he's also the Charles A. Dana Professor of English at Norwich University. He has a short story collection called The End of All of Our Exploring. And, oh, he's going to hold that one up, too, for us. But... Um, he is also one of the co-founders of the Shirley Jackson Awards. And I don't have an award to hold up, sorry. <laughs> yeah. He has uh, been a juror on the Bram Stoker Awards, and he's wow. been um, – has gotten a Lifetime uh, Achievement Award or for contributions to science fiction scholarship from the Science Fiction Research Association. Oh, yeah, <laughs> where'd you where'd you get that? Where'd you get that? No, no, no. I, I, I'll please, may I may I amend sure. that, please? Um, I was on the jury for the Lifetime Achievement Award. Oh, from okay. the science fiction. No, 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 no. When okay. I was on the jury, we gave it to Ursula K. Le Guin. So let's get our hierarchies <laughs> straight here. I, I, I'm sorry if there was any miscommunication about that. Right. And no, no, no served, Lifetime Achievement Awards for me yet. Right, but you also have served uh, um, on the jury for the Philip K. Dick Award as well. Yes, That's yes, I did that Not I did that last year. Yeah. All right, so I'm sorry if I got that a little off, but no, 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 uh, you, right. you are a official science fiction academic, so and an expert on Rogers and Lasney, so we needed you here today, Brett. Thank you for joining the Dickheads oh, podcast. My pleasure. I'm happy to be here. All right, and so I should introduce our other Dickheads in case you're new to the show. Maybe you're a Zelaznut, and this is your third time, because this is the third time we've covered Zelazny. And um, if you are a Zelaznut that's new here, I'm David Agronoff. I'm co-host of this show. I also have a podcast called Postcards from a Dying World. And I wrote a book called Goddamn Killing Machines, which is my science fiction novel that just sponsored the Brett and Spiner interview on Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. So uh, people should go check out that interview because Brett Spiner's new book sounds really hilarious and awesome. And I can't wait to read it. Uh, also I, joining us. I didn't us, know he was a writer. Yeah, he wrote a meta, um, he called it a mem noir, which I love. 
Um, so he did a memoir and mixed in a noir story about a, a, a stalker who stalks him and data, that's, basically. That's perfect for data. Yeah, yeah. It sounds really neat. So um, I'm looking forward to reading that. Um, since you just talked, uh, Langhorn, why don't you introduce yourself to the folks? I'm Langhorn J. Tweed. That's Langhorn J. Tweed. And also joining us, our final dickhead, Anthony Trevino. You better tell us more. Uh, yeah, so hi. I'm Anthony Trevino. I'm a writer and a film critic. My most recent book out at the moment is Hissers 3, Fortress of Flesh, co-written with the Ryan C. Thomas. Um, and David and I also have a short story out right now in uh, The Beyond, uh, stories inspired by the Lucio Fulci death trilogy. David, hold it up if it's over there somewhere. Oh, it's over my... Yeah, I um, Yeah, so David and I have a short story we co-wrote together in that. And yeah, that's me. Yeah, I, I should have mentioned that. All right, um, all right, we're we're gonna start off like we always do with the PKD news, and there actually is PKD news this time, besides just like random articles, where they where just, uh, yet another person says it's like a Philip K. Dick story because that's when you look up Philip K. Dick news, that's a lot of it. Um, the Vulcan's Hammer adaptation is in pre-production. Um, which Larry, we, I hope you're excited, even though they did not contact David or I to write the script. I am, I am very excited because this is. I, I, I feel like we've had a big influence on that. <laughs> yeah, we did um, talk a lot about how Vulcan's Hammer would make a great movie, and, and apparently how Hollywood it was and all that stuff. Yeah, we were. Mm -hmm. I mean, and it has a director attached, and that's Francis Lawrence who uh, made his debut with the underrated Keanu Reeves uh, Constantine movie, which is a mixed bag because... Underrated? Underrated? <laughs> well, I will say it's underrated for this reason. I think everything but Keanu works amazingly well. The problem is the lead that, character yeah. was this cast. That is the best iteration of the devil I've ever seen in a film, even though I might be biased about who plays them. Peter Stormare? Right. Yes, you're yeah. a big Peter Stormare fan. Yes. Uh, Tilda Swinton is amazing in it, too, um, yeah, as Gabriel. He's and um, so Francis Lawrence, he went on to make I Am Legend and a bunch of Hunger Games movies. Hmm. Um, and he is tackling oh. Vulcan's Hammer. And uh, Electric Sheep Productions made an announcement that they have the director attached now. There's a long way to go, but having a director attached certainly... Um, means that... Well, yeah, especially a tentpole director like that. I mean, if he did the... Uh, Hunger Games. Yeah. Hunger Games stuff. Yeah. So it, it appears that they're working on a script right now, but they're pretty serious about doing it, so we'll see how that goes. And you never know what could happen. We all, we were supposed to get um, a Clifford Samak Waystation movie last year, and then the COVID delays for the Batman because Matt Reeves is going to direct it, and the Batman being delayed ended up, like, nixing um, the Clifford Samak movie. So you never know. Yeah. Things could happen. But they're at least serious about trying to do this. And, yes, we talked at length about how Vulcan's Hammer would make a, an excellent, uh, a, a better movie than it was a novel, um, <laughs> almost. Um, and so, yes, we are very excited about the Vulcan's Hammer announcement. Um, the other PKD uh, happening Hollywood-wise is um, Blade Runner Black Lotus premiered on Adult Swim. 
Um, I know I watched it. Larry watched it. Did you, Anthony or Brett, did either of you watch the Blade Runner? I, I did not. I did not get that memo. I didn't know it exists. Now that I do, I'll watch it. Uh, a, lot, a lot of people are really happy about it. I did not watch it. I have mixed feelings. Um, yeah, well, so do I. <laughs> yeah. I, so, I, I'm not in the in the group that thinks it's uh, better than the uh, 2049. So. Oh, that that's crazy. Yeah. Um, no, it's two 24-minute episodes have been released. I think the third one might have come came out last night. Yeah. And it'll, probably, it'll be out by the time this episode comes out. That's for sure. Yeah. And I only watched the first one so far, and I liked it. Um, I was a little surprised that even though it's set in L.A. in um, between the events of the two movies, that it was all in Japanese, um, okay. and which is fine, but it almost made me wish that it took place in in Tokyo, Tokyo? in <laughs> in that world. Yeah, would have been would have been. I, I, I was actually thinking the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. And it's good, but I don't think it's anything mind-bending. And one thing I will say is there, there's, there's like almost nothing PKD-ish about it. It's, it's no, it, it's Blade Runner. It's Blade Runner, yeah. yeah. Which what do I always say, guys? Historically, people think they're doing PKD when really they're just doing Blade Runner. Yep. Yep. Exactly. Yep. That's right. I mean, it, this is a good Blade Runner story, but. I mean, we'll, David, did you? We'll see where it goes. Better, better than the the comics that Titan are putting out. Well, you, uh, no. I haven't read those, but I know. I would good. say that the, from the what Titan, you guys say, the comics are better than Black Lotus. So. Yeah, the storytelling in the in the uh, Blade Runner comics is very good, um, and I almost kind of wish. Well, you know, I mean, those stories exist in comic form, so that's fine. And um, but when I read those comics, I'm like, oh man, I would love to have a Blade Runner movie of this. Yeah, and and, and, yeah. and when I watched the anime, I was just kind of like, yeah, it's it's okay, it's entertaining, you know, it's fine. But I only watched one episode so far, and and uh, tonight I'll watch the second one, and we'll 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 see how it goes. But it it may get better, you know. But um, but well, but for uh, me, it's the animation style that I just don't I don't really vibe on that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I mean. I think the story's fine. <laughs> yeah. Well, it could be like... Strong well, ringing endorsement, Larry. Yeah, right. Fine. <laughs> there are moments in the animation, though, uh, and it's not quite... on that Star Trek has a new animated series for kids called Prodigy, and there are moments when there's no characters on the screen where, the, where it almost looks like the live action, like when you're seeing the ships go and all that. Mm-hmm. And there were no moments like that in, in Black Lotus for me. Um but there were moments where you definitely felt like you were you were in the Blade Runner universe, so that's cool. You yeah, know? yeah, yeah, and I do appreciate that. But uh, shall shall we move on to the book? Let's do that. All right. Well, Deus Eri was published in the year 1976. David, what was happening in the year 1976? Well, Jimmy Carter won the election, and the bicentennial celebrations around the United States started happening. The first space shuttle was unveiled, and Apple computers were founded. So that's your ba- your backdrop of the year this was published. However, and it was my first year voting. Oh yeah. Ah. Okay. Well, there. So that's we how have, old I am. 
Yeah. I was two years old, so. Um, not to. <laughs> I was not alive. I was yeah. more than two years old, but. I, I'm used to it at this point. Yeah, right. It's okay. It's okay. Right. Well, I uh, do remember those bicentennial quarters, though. They, they were mm-hmm. very popular. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so this book came out in 1976. However, the first initial um, outline or draft was written in 1964. So a lot of times we always talk about when we do the, the writing and publication history, and guess what? We're in the writing and publication history section now. Um, when we talk about it, we always talk about what Dick wrote before and what Dick wrote after. But we're going to have to kind of do that twice because um, Dick wrote 48 pages of the manuscript, um, and then he couldn't. He got blocked, couldn't finish it. Which 48 pages do you know? Um, I will be able to show you exactly, and for those of our YouTube viewers, we'll be able to look at it. Um, because I got a chance to look at the manuscript while I was in Fullerton last month, which, as we could talk about, um, I did get a chance to visit the PKD papers in Fullerton, and I got a chance to look at many things, including lots of outlines that he wrote, um, Earthshaker, which was his first attempt at a novel, um, and the the woman who runs... He has, like, seven missing novels, but he has the outline for his first ever novel outline in the first 40 pages or so the first two chapters which i read um and uh basically of Earthshaker, there's two chapters that are fully written and then he started over and rewrote those oh, really? first two chapters yeah that and sounds, so sounds about right i mean yeah and he never finished my it. entire writing career it's just rewriting the first chapter well, um, that was 1948. But anyways, we're not here to talk about Earthshaker. But I did get a chance to look at this first attempt at a manuscript, and I'll be able to share a screen with people and show you some pictures of the manuscript. And that way we know exactly where he stopped, uh, down to the sentence. He didn't even finish um, the chapter he was working on. He just stopped. Uh, but that first outline was written in 1964. And we know that... Um, it was that early in, in the year he that the penultimate truth and the unteleported man were written in mid 1964. Okay, and he seems to have written Clockwork World, um, Counterclock World in 1965, but he was also in this period working on Ganymede Takeover with Ray Nelson. Okay, yeah. however, it appears that these 48 pages for, for Deus. Erie were written between Three Stigmata of Palmer Eldridge and before Penultimate Truth. So, wow. take, so Anthony, between two of your favorites, he worked on this. Yeah. Um, under another terrible title, as PKD likes to do, uh, The Kneeling Legless Man was his original title. So it wouldn't be a PKD book without a terrible That's a rough one. title. Um, as it's we still not as bad as the Earth's diurnal core or whatever Dr. Yeah. Blood Money was. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And he sold the original 48 pages and the promise of the rest of the book to Doubleday in 1964. And he reached out to two different writers, 
Ted White, which we'll talk about in a minute, and Roger Zelazny. And Ted White was like, nah, I don't know, um, and didn't want to, didn't end up doing any of it. And he reached back out to Zelazny uh, after. Wait, 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 hold on. So Ted White is the one that wrote the. Is he the one that wrote the ending of one of his books? We Can Build You, yes. We Can Build You? Okay. And Ted White said in 1965 or 1966, he he gave me the first 50 pages for Deus Irie and asked me to finish it for him. In other words, this was a man who, profe- who I professed admiration and respect for me and wanted me to collaborate with him. So Ted White was using that as like, hey, he didn't think I was a total asshole. He sent me two different... He sent me this other book as well. So right. he was actually using the fact that Di- that Deus Irie went to him E-ray. to kind of defend himself after Dick. I- Irie is something totally different. Yeah, yeah. And so so the final draft, after Zelazny did his draft, he sent it back to Dick, and Dick added a little bit at the beginning and a little bit and added the epilogue. And so he did that... Um, after the Ubix screenplay and before Radio Free album is. Okay. So, so there's two different phases where this was, this was going on, and then there was a lot of in-between. Now, here's the thing. In 1964, when he sold the outline, um, and it's really funny, and um, Anthony, get ready to read, um, our first PKD quote is about a letter in 1964 that it's from a letter in 1964 that he sent to, I believe it was um, to Doubleday. So PKD said, Roger Zelazny and I are going to collaborate on a novel. The basis of it is an outline I did back in 1964, which Doubleday bought. I was oh, this is to SMLA. Sorry. What? This is to the literary agency. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. I was never able to actually write the actual damn book and had Ted White take a look at the outline. He in turn having decided, I guess, that he couldn't do it either. Or didn't want to gave it to Dele- to <clears throat> excuse me gave it to Dele- to Zelazny with whom I was already discussing a possible collaboration. I do not remember the outline, however. It's called Deus Ire and deals with a future religion. So um, it wasn't until 1975 that Zelazny completed his part. I don't know what took so long, but um, it got sent to. Um, PKD on August 17th, 1975, and at, at the Fullerton Papers that has the the letter that um, that came with that manuscript, and that's when um, and there's really not much to the letter. It's just here's here's my manuscript, Phil. What do you think? And then Phil added a little bit at the beginning, a little bit at the end, and did some like little like hand edits uh but that's it and then they sent the manuscript to double day in 1976 which is funny because that's like literally um 12 years after he sold the outline to them now they had uh, they did uh do android's dream of electric sheep in between double day did for for him however it appears in 1964 that this um this was pissing off double day and they really wanted it <laughs> right and they were like, we already paid you, and if you don't get to work on it, we're going to want our money back. And so I think a lot of recruiting Zelazny was to just keep them saying, like, hey, hey, I'm going to give you a collaboration with another hotshot writer. And so 
calm down because you're going to get something even cooler. Uh, yeah, because uh, Zelazny won uh, two uh, Hugos. Two Hugos in in the '60s, right? And yeah, he won, he, won, uh, two, he won the Hugo for This Immortal and for Lord of Light. And he also won the Nebula Award for um, Best Novella for He Who Shapes and Best Novelette for um, Always Gotta Take a Deep Breath Before I Say This, The Doors of His Face and the Laps of His Mouth. And so he had won both of the major awards twice by the time he was 30. It is... Yeah, kind I, of. Uh, it is kind of hard to overstate the impact that Zelazny had at that time in the '60s, and in not only as a a very quickly established fan favorite, but also uh, other writers. How they were just like who, who, what, when, where, you know, what? Uh, <laughs> they were just absolutely astonished. David, when you say he's a hotshot writer, he's not just a hotshot writer. He's like a really big deal. (laughs) He is the hotshot writer. Chip uh, Chip Delaney uh, remembers that at the Worldcon in 66 in Cleveland, where Zelazny won the Hugo, that uh, in a tie with Doom, another historical footnote, Mm -hmm. that... um, uh, uh, Chip remembers that they were introducing various big name writers, all of whom got healthy amounts of applause. But when they introduced Selassie, uh the applause would, just went on and on and on. That uh, he was a major star, uh, you know, very, uh, very, very quickly. And it's interesting what you're saying about the public, uh, the compositional history. Uh, and it's sort of why when I do have my scholars hat on, I find it very difficult to deal with collaborative works, because unless you do have access to the papers, I mean, who knows, right? Yeah. Uh, first yeah. of all, can you ever believe anything any writer says about their own work? No. And, uh, you know, and all of that, because Zelazny's claim was basically that what you were saying, but, um, you know, uh, Zelazny was uh, claiming that they went, they kind of decided to do this book, and they both had lots of other contractual obligations, and they just kind of worked on it in fits and starts over the years. But Zelazny's comments leave the impression that there was a back and forth, that he would write a bit, and then Dick would write a bit, and then Zelazny would write some more. But I did uh, that, what you were saying about that Doubleday finally got fed up and said, all right, we need this, or you're going to have to give back the advance. And that was kind of spurred Zelazny to go ahead and um, and finish the book. But it's like... It still took know, 10 years. It still took 10 years. It's like neither one of... It's odd. It's like neither... Neither one of them seemed to consider it a super high priority, nope. you know, to get it done. They were both very busy uh, with other things, and also the period that this, uh, when this process dragged on, was the period when Selassie, um, you know, became a full-time writer because he had a full-time uh, day job working for the Social Security Administration, which he finally quit in the late '60s. And um, but then he started 
getting contracts and having contractual obligations and writing things on deadlines. And uh, all the standalone books he did through the 1970s and into the 1980s are interweaved and sometimes put on hold while he finished the next Amber novel. Anthony, we have a quote from Zelazny from a convention from 1978. Could you read us that quote? Sure. Some years ago, Phil Dick, who is a very hot writer when he is on top of things, had agreed to write 12 books in a year's time. Mm. A book a month. Apparently, he delivered 11 of the books. It got to be December, and the book was a thing called Deus Irae, for which he'd written an outline. I thought my outlines were pretty good when it came to faking the action and taking the publisher completely, but this was a masterpiece. It was much longer than those I usually manage, but it said less even. It was basically a philosophical essay, quite lovely, and then there were 50 pages of copy. At that point, Phil Dick stopped. He was blocked. Now, here's another funny thing, is that in this period, um, PKD tried to sell um, Zelazny on other projects. Instead of writing this one, I've got these other outlines. Mm-hmm. And so there were two of them. So, um, Anthony, the next quote. Paul Williams noted what PKD had in mind was a lamination of the two outlines of Joe Prada- oh, oh boy. Joe Protagoras is alive and living on Earth, and the name of the game is death. In the end, though, nothing came from these suggestions except the decision to work on Deus Irae. Perhaps Elasny, his interest piqued about PKD's mention of the forlorn 1964 outline, inquired about that, and PKD started telling him, and before you knew it, Deus Irae is revived from the dead with Ted White passing on the sample pages to Zelazny at his or PKD's request. This most likely occurred in early 1968. Here's the uh, name of the game is Death. These are the two that he wanted he wanted to sell Zelazny on. Um, and... The Joe protagonist is alive um, and well on Earth. That whole outline is published in the philosophical writings of Philip K. Dick. So you can get that in book form. But name of the, the name of the game is Death is not out there. And it is basically a game about, or it's a book about a board game where the people playing in it die instantly if certain moves are made. So it's, a, it's sort of a, is this a, Precursor to Game Players of Titan, or is Game Players of Titan already out at this point? Game Players of Titan is already out. Okay. And you can see here that in this essay, he compares it to um, Squares of the City by Bruner. Um, but he also goes on to say, like, why it's going to be better, because it's not actually about chess, right? It's about this other game. But he tried to sell Zelazny on these two outlines. Now, the... Um, Joe Protagoras is alive um, and living on Earth is about a future dictatorship and is very early 60s PKD. And I actually think that one sounds pretty interesting. They're both somewhat interesting. And eventually, I think we'll probably cover them as a whole and maybe read them together because I have the whole outlines um, now. But... Uh, and they could have been really interesting things, but it's funny that um, it's clear that Zelazny did not want to do these, right? <laughs> um, like, PKD sent these to him, but it was De- Deus Irie was the one right. that he was interested in. And it makes sense to me, and I, I'm wondering, Brett, if you think that that, because to me, I think 
this book kind of sits philosophically with Lord of Light, which, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. and so, yeah, I, I so yeah, so I think this one makes more sense to be a Zelazny mm-hmm. collaboration than, mm-hmm. than than the other. Right. Two. Well, it's I, also when I was rereading the book for our conversation, um, I I thought about uh, another Zelazny book, and that's Damnation Alley. Because that was yeah. another road trip across a blasted post-apocalyptic American landscape, and so um, I'd I'd have to look it up to see exactly what the compositional dates were relative to this. But what um, I think, and it seems to me, based on the the evidence you've uncovered and what I found in my own research is that a lot of the sections of the novel that actually are Tybor on the road seem to me to be, you know, very heavily Selesny, uh contribution. So maybe the idea of something that promised, you know, a journey uh, appealed to him more than the other, uh, than the other uh, options. And, of course, the, you know, the religious aspect of it, which he was, uh, and the degree to which the religion... Uh, at least in the course of this novel, uh, the degree to which the religion is mythologized. And right, of course, and, that, yeah. and on top of that, there were 48 finished pages. Well, that's the right. Other ones, the other ones, they yeah. would be starting from scratch. Yeah, yeah. so Lasny was one of the most interesting things um, uh, I found in work in researching and writing about Zelazny is that he, of course, he was the hotshot and he was the preeminently literary figure, but he was an eminently practical writer and he had a very strong sense of the business side of things and kept a, a close eye on everything. Uh, you know, at one, I found a quote where he's referring to something he had written as copy. Uh, you know, just and uh, was there's uh, another quote I found in correspondence with his agent where he pointed out that the cover price on the paperback edition of one of his novels had been incorrectly indicated in the royalty statement. So, you know, that level of detail to the business side of things. So I'm quite sure if he had the choice between a kind of blue sky outline from Philip K. Dick and 48 pages of actual manuscript narrative from Philip K. Dick. I'm sure that influenced his decision. Absolutely, and and, and I think um, because he could read what he was starting, and he could see like the mm-hmm. novel that he was already building. I'm sure that that also appealed mm-hmm. to him. Yep. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah, I, now we have the letter. <laughs> To double day, um, and I there's a lot of it, Anthony, and I'm sorry, but I think it really says a lot about this project because this is to Lawrence um, Ashmead, who is his editor at Double Day, and so this is to keep in mind this is I'm four years late on this book that I promised you. <laughs> He's given them other books, right? In that time, '66 he delivered um, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep. But this one in particular, he was already paid for. So, Anthony. I attended the Baycon and met Roger Zelazny. He and I got together in an abandoned room and talked business for many hours. 
our collaboration on Deus Irae, which he has told me he likes very much. I am reading Lord of Light, by the way, and find ample reason for it winning the Hugo. It's a superb book, and the religious elements convince me, if I wasn't already convinced, that he can do quite right on Deus Irae. As to Deus Irae, which I know you want to know about, Roger wants to do the next 50 or so pages. And I agreed, because as you know, I myself am stopped dead. However, contractual obligations have him tied up until January, but at the time he will begin on it. He will carry on where my initial 50 pages left off. I'm sorry that we can't do it sooner, but I can't do it all, and Roger's committed for the remainder of the year. But consider, a novel by me and Roger's Zelazny. Shouldn't that be quite something? God help us if it isn't. I know it will be good. I think the, <clears throat> that ultimately everyone will be glad that I pooped out after the first 50 pages because that gave Roger a chance to enter. I got maybe a third. <clears throat> you were saying something, David? No, go ahead. Okay. I typed end a Freudian slip. I got maybe a third of it done and discovered that I didn't know anything about the subject matter, which is Christianity. I could sing a few hymns, you know, and I could cross myself, but that was about it. <laughs> anyway. I had embarked on a theological novel about knowing, <clears throat> without knowing anything about theology. So when I ran across Zelazny in 1968, I'd been working for four years on the novel, and I said, Zelazny, do you know anything about theology? He said, you better believe it, Jack. And I said, how would you like to collaborate with me? I got one-third of this thing done, and it's all about Christianity. So we took it. Okay, so um, <laughs> there's a lot to unpack there. But hey, you guys are smarter than me. Um, I, I, for some reason, my brain has heard it. Theology is it theology or is it it's theology? The, the, theology. Theology. Yeah. Theology. The, okay. Yeah. I don't know why I kept thinking it was theology. I don't it, know it's well, it's typical English language confusion. It's theology. It's theological, but it's yeah. but if you're talking about a practitioner of theology, it's a theologian. Yeah. Oh, okay. Perfect. Thank you. A, that solves yeah. that. Wide range. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's it's interesting here. Like, he claims to just not know anything about Christianity. However, he went on to do a lot of research about Christianity to write Counterclockworld. Yeah, later in his life, right? Yeah. yeah. So a year later, he ended up writing Counterclockworld. Um, I think this is bullshit. I think <laughs> he did not know how to end it. He didn't know what to do with the end of it. And he was using the, I don't know about Christianity as an excuse. Mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. We know that PKD is a spinster in interviews and in letters. Like, he um, he almost, I know in interviews, he sees it as a game. Tessa has said this multiple times, that he had admitted this to her. Uh, so we know it's you can only trust so much of what PKD actually I think, I think you meant spin doctor, not, uh, not spinster. Yeah. Something well, whatever. Funny. Anyways, not to be confused with the '90s rock band, The Spin Doctors, right, Larry? Right. <laughs> oh, that's so, right. Now I really yeah, feel. That's, that's <laughs> uh, yeah. Oh, that's uh, and the uh, you actually have some uh, sort of academic support for that because I look, look back at uh, I don't know if you remember the old Twain series of. Uh, Books, the Twain's um, United States author series, and they were kind of career overviews of just like everybody. And there was one on Philip K. Dick in the 1980s, and the hmm. page that they, uh, the author devotes to Deus Irae 
was um, set, made the reference to, oh, well, they claimed that he got Zelazny involved because Zelazny knew more of Christianity than he did. But this guy was saying there's not really that much evidence that Zelazny brought any heavier theological insight to uh, to the book. I mean, um, I mean, Zelazny was raised Catholic, as far as I know. Uh, I, I don't know that he was particularly devout, but he had an encyclopedic. Well, he had an encyclopedic knowledge of, of all sorts of things. He was very much um, a wide reader in many disciplines, and um, he, so he he knew he probably had. If if the question is who's read more books on theology, Philip K. Dick or Roger Zelazny, my money would be on Zelazny. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean that. Um, you know, that Dick needed somebody to tell him about Christianity. Yeah, and, and to be clear, the, the book doesn't go that deep into no. Christianity. No. It's not. I would say Counter Clock World has more Christianity. Yeah, it's not a, in it. no. it, it's yeah. not a, a full essay on, on the roots of Christianity or anything like that. It's, oh, not at all. Not at it, all. There's definitely more religion in Lord of Light, and there's more... Mm -hmm. Not Christianity, technically, but there's more mm -hmm. religious philosophical stuff going on in Lord of Light than there is in, in this one. But oh, oh, absolutely. I would I would suggest too that if Dick was citing Lord of Light, if this guy knows all about Christianity, one of the reasons I think that book had its impact um, is that it was in addition to all of the you know stylistic and structural things with it that it was just so unusual at that point for a writer to be deal writing a science fiction novel or a science fantasy novel about non-Western uh, religious Religion, traditions. Yeah. You know, I found one quote that was saying that today we might call it cultural appropriation. Back then you get points for just knowing that other religions existed. <laughs> and it may right. have it may have been that Dick said, well, if this guy knows so much about Hinduism and Buddhism, you know, he's got to know a lot about Christianity. So, uh, you know, I'll go with it. So, yeah, why not? Now, now, Brett, do you think that Zelazny, whether he knew about Christianity or not, would have said, mm -hmm. yep, I know all about it. Let's go. Let's write it. Do you think he would just agree to it to for the chance he to write with Dick? Because he did he admire his work quite Oh, a bit. he admired Dick tremendously. I mean, so that, the introduction to Payback, the uh, you know posthumous anthology that that uh, David, you reminded me of in our email correspondence, was uh, by Zelazny, and Zelazny dedicated one of his novels. Right, today we choose faces was dedicated to Philip K. Dick, Electric Shepherd. So it was not a one-way street. I mean, Zelazny genuinely admired. Uh, Dick's work, and I'm sure he would have been quite chuffed at the uh, possibility of uh, collaborating uh, of collaborating with him. Uh, Zelazny had often a great confidence in his own work, whether or not he would have expressed it quite that um, bluntly to a colleague. I, I, I'm really not sure. Um, now, in this, we have a quote where he says to his agent that um, Doubleday is very anxious about Deus Irie, and uh, mostly right. because because they'd like the contract for the name of the game as death as soon as possible. Now he could be saying that to his agent because 
if they were so anxious about that, we probably would have already done an episode on the name of the game is Death under mm-hmm. some other title. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but it that that never happened. So I don't know if that was just him saying like, yeah, they really want this, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, who knows? But he. Um, he felt pressure to, to move it mm-hmm. forward. So in 19, uh, in November, 1968, uh, PKD wrote a letter. This was, um, I believe this letter. My theory is, is that this was after the Bacon meeting that I think he went to read Lord of light after they talked. Oh, okay. uh, if the timeline, I could be wrong about the timeline, but that's mm. from everything I see it. That's what it looks like. So, November 1968, PKD wrote to Roger Zelazny, go Anthony. After reading Lord of Light, I can see that you'll have no trouble with our collaboration, Deus Ivory. By the way, an idea came to me about <clears throat> that. Maybe the viewpoint and locale could shift at about page 55 to the God of Wrath himself. That's something that didn't occur to me until today, and it's been four and a half years. Shifting viewpoint is a method I always use, but for some reason this never occurred to me. Any good? Yes? No? In between? Yeah. So he was, even though he, Roger wrote the next little bit, he's guiding things a little bit. He's making suggestions. He's, um, and my theory too is what's really interesting to think about is the inclusion of the Great Sea. We know that Phil recycles his short stories, but this was it. The Great Sea doesn't appear until Roger took over the writing, right? So either. Roger Zelazny thought, I'm going to incorporate this Philip K. Dick short story, or Philip K. Dick, Phil suggested to him, and what I'm guessing is that at that abandoned room, whatever that means, um, in that abandoned room, I think Phil probably said, I was going to use the Great Sea in this novel, or you should use the Great Sea, or how about my story of the Great Sea? We'll never know, but um, because it's in the Zelazny parts, and a lot of this Phil K. Dick pastiche is used in these parts of the book. Um, mm-hmm. Flip flaps, auto facts. Yeah, um, mm-hmm. all the classics. Yeah, all the classics right. are mm-hmm. there, but they're in the back half. They're mm-hmm. not just in the in the beginning. And um, so I think one way or oh, another, and that's all Zelazny. Yes. Okay. And uh, the only – it's funny because you know how you guys have gotten annoyed with me using all the Kim Stanley Robinson quotes um, about – Which, thanks, I scrolled down and I saw that they're still there. <laughs> There's only one because he didn't write about this book. That's, That's what more than you were allowed. It's just the one. Yeah. Well, well Stan's no fool. He said, wait a minute, this is kind of a messy collaboration. I'll, I'll, we don't need to worry about that. Yeah, and basically all he said was, and we don't even have to really read the quote, but basically all he says is, is that it's just Zelazny writing in PKD pastiche. Okay. And, uh, like, mm. I disagree with him mm. that, that there's not something here to talk about, because I think mm-hmm. there's a lot to talk about. Mm-hmm. But it's funny that, you know, Kim Stanley Robinson's just like, yeah, no. it's just Roger Zelazny writing PKD um, and then writing my, it off, which is weird well, to me. Right, right. Well, my, um, um, I think that my mind, forgive me, my mm-hmm. minority, my minority report 
I couldn't resist, was, is that um, I'm just not completely convinced that it's that the t actual compositional process. I mean, obviously, the first those first 48 pages that stick, and it claims that he wrote the um, you know uh, the sort of uh, coda uh, there at the beginning. I'm not convinced that everything in between is either Zelazny contributing new material or repurposing uh, Dick's material. Uh, I'm just, and I have no evidence for this, I don't have any textual evidence, I don't have any evidence in the papers, but I just have the feeling that there may have been more of a back and forth between uh, between the two of them for everything that came between in the novel. One thing that Zelazny said, claimed is that when they finally turned it in, that there was no like polish of the book. There was no attempt to go back and do a final edit to, uh, on it. Well, that and, sounds like and, I mean, yeah, and that's very much like Philip Dick. But there are also there are these points in the book where, um, it, at least to me, uh, some of it sound even though that sort of long middle of the book where yeah, some of it I'd say yeah. That's Zelazny writing, but some of it, if it isn't Dick, then of course Zelazny, and again, this is possible, did quite a job of um, mirroring uh, Dick's writing style. I yeah. mean, we, we, yeah, we were saying I was talking before we started recording that Zelazny was not given much to the interior monologue, and mm -hmm. you know anything, and so. I my again just this is a subjective uh, a guess on my part is that any parts of this book that contain the phrase he thought, you know, are either that something that Dick wrote or that is Zelazny deliberately trying to um, to use Dick's um, narrative style. Well, uh, I mean, as someone that's been reading Dick for like the past three years, mm -hmm. uh, I I noticed things that weren't. Dickian in, mm -hmm. in, in, in their writing and, and the way they they were put forth. But then mm -hmm. other things in the middle of the book definitely mm. are yeah. exactly yeah. how Dick would write them. So Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I, I believe I believe in that more more of a collaborative than than a handing over kind of a thing. Mm -hmm. Was well that? this I, book certainly feels let uh, more consistent narratively than a lot of Dick's books. Yeah, and, but but see, I can't say whether or not Zelazny contributed to that because mm -hmm. I have not read any of his stuff. But so often Dick will go down these 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 roads where I'm like, why why are we here? And then I spend 20 minutes trying to figure out what it connects to, which never really feels like it connects to anything. But tonally, this feels very con more mm -hmm. consistent. Well, because you you, you can see that in the first 40 pages is that it's right. sort of like the the idea of of the book is there, but the the actual plot and doing of the book is not there. It comes in the second half fully, which is when I started mm -hmm. paying more attention and kind of enjoying it. I, mm -hmm. I enjoy the latter half of this book a lot more than the first mm -hmm. half. Yeah, once the pilgrimage starts, that's when yeah. the book starts. Yeah, I, I mean, they, there's a lot of heavy lifting in those 48 pages that the Dick is asking a great deal of patience from mm -hmm. his readers uh, in, in that first section. And it's also... Um, you know, the book, uh, rereading it this time, I was struck that the book sets itself up fairly quickly as a a road trip. You know, Tybor's going to go out yeah, and I mean, find the, the guy. Right. 
and then but then he doesn't actually hit the road until well more uh, more than a third through the novel and then there's not that much of the novel left i mean if you want to say on page 16 you're going on a journey and you don't actually begin the journey until page 90 uh, that's one thing if it's a 500-page book, but if at page 90 you've only got 130 pages left, that uh, if, you know can seem a little bit out of uh, out well, of. That's that, I mean that's so that's so Philip K. Dick to mm-hmm. do that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Well, look, and there's some things in the beginning too, like page seven of the print of the Mariner edition is basically where where the manuscript awkwardly starts so the first couple pages um Mm -hmm. are are new Mm -hmm. um however pkd claimed to have added those um Mm -hmm. uh, in one of the back and forth that that those were his his additions now one of the things that's interesting is we assume that because you know researchers that look at these they're always looking for the one of the lucky things is, is like we would have emails today there's letters that go back and forth for some of these but i think roger and phil were talking on the phone quite a bit during the process of writing this that's my understanding and, and so here's the thing too and we look at the big gap that's going on here and maybe it's my bias because i just read the divine madness of philip k dick but you know roger was very busy during this time doing other books well phil had two divorces <laughs> right had mm-hmm. a, 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 a two suicide attempts um a like a, a 350 dollar a week amphetamine like addiction at one point like he had he hit the bottom of the barrel during part of this period and was completely blocked to the point that before he wrote Flow My Tears, like this couple years passed where he didn't do shit. So some of these conversations that he's having with Zelazny in 68 and 69 are right in the middle of this very low period. Mm-hmm. So when he's talking to Roger, I doubt he's saying, yeah, man, I have teenage drug addicts at my house right now. So <laughs> I'm a little busy getting the teenagers fucked up. Uh, to write this philosophical book about religion, yeah. go ahead and finish it for me. Yeah, right. He's not going to tell him. Bill's that. house is that house. Yeah, yeah right, right, he had right, that right. house. So when when I look at the dates and I see like 68, 69, like, you know, I'm wondering during some of the, some of this had to be his low period. Mm-hmm. So and and I don't know if Roger has any idea how fucking bad things are yeah. on the other end. They, they, they met uh, at a convention, right? They well, Yeah, well, they met uh, in the payback uh, introduction, Selassie claims that they met in Cal- a couple of times in California and in France. I don't have oh, okay. no, no knowledge of that 77. at all. Yeah, but the thing is, uh, oh, so that was after the book. Yeah, that well. was after the book came so, out. So, um, well, one thing in some ways, the, it's it's a really uh, big distinction to be made between the two men that Selaz, uh you know, I mean, we know what Philip K. Dick's personal life was like. Selazny's personal life was not like that. He led, uh, there were a couple, with a couple of exceptions, 
his life, as far as I've been able to tell, was without traumatic disruption. Mm-hmm. I mean, he led a very quiet life. He, uh, he um, you know, had a family. He had a couple of things. You know, he was, um, had, uh, he did um, have an early marriage that ended kind of, uh, that divorced quickly after they were in a very bad car wreck. Uh, you know, and then his father died around the same time. And then later on, uh, toward the end of his life, his longtime marriage um, uh, broke up and he became partners with uh, the writer Jane Lenskold uh, and was with her for the last year or two of his life. And except for that, he just, you know, worked and yeah. traveled and had a family and was like normal. <laughs> you know, yeah, he's, he's not... Uh, they're no, not on the same place as far no, as no, 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 right. no. He's no, he's no Lord Byron or anything. <laughs> no, 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 no. Well, he did, and he had a passionate affair with a folk singer when he was hanging out in Greenwich. All right, so he's got a little so, Byron. So he's got a little Byron in him. I'm willing to bet that uh, that uh, smoking weed with jazz musicians was probably, um, you know, um, his drug experience, <laughs> if, well, if there that, was one. Yeah. So we're almost done with the writing and publication history. The publication history is Doubleday did eventually put it out in a hardcover. And mm-hmm. then we had this like really cool Dell paperback that we that both that two of us have here with yeah, this great Roger Corbin cover. Um, and and it has a really the back description on here makes it sound even weirder than well it, it, it correctly points out how weird it is. It can be easy to, to forget how weird this book is when you're focused on the religious stuff mm-hmm. yeah and um on that note the writing and publication history is over uh langhorn uh take on over and- all right here we are here we are at the story breakdown and uh first of all uh this one's going to be interpretive second of all <laughs> i'm going to start it with a little anecdote about what i did yesterday Will you be voguing? I, I might vogue a little. All right. Uh, so yesterday, uh, by coincidence, purely by coincidence and, and not by design, I went to a an art installation of the Sistine Chapel, where it was the, the pieces of the Sistine Chapel separated with an audio description and history of each piece it's a recreation obviously they're not actual yeah it's not actually the sistine chapel but they they, didn't take it apart and bring it over no but it 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 dovetailed so well with this novel of a new messiah that it was kind of a a weird coincidence and so that that's going to work its way into this this interpretation so as we proceed, welcome to Deus Irae, the Book of the New Messiah. We begin with the first apostle, Tibor, who is an armless and legless man who must go on a journey, whether he likes it or not, because the old God is not right for him, but the new God is also not right for him. So. Tibor McMasters, beyond, uh, first of all, the, yeah, there's a whole bunch of junk in the beginning about the differences between the religions, 
the servants of wrath and the Christians. Of course, the Christians are, once again, sort of the antagonists of the world. Even this new post-apocalyptic world, 90 years from the Third World War, and the mutants have taken over along with the autofacts. So our our apostle must go on a journey, a pilgrimage, a pilg, as it's called in the book. The pilg is to take a picture of the new God, the new trinity, you might say, as we'll find out later. And so he consults his priest of the Servants of Wrath, and he consults the priest of the Christians and decides that whether he likes it or not, he must go on this journey with his cow in his cart and find find the new god and take a picture of because, you know, he's got to paint and he is a, an excellent painter. Possibly the best painter on earth. So, he needs arms anyways. Yeah. He, in fact, he doesn't believe he can paint if he has arms. So, We also meet Pete Sands, who is our second apostle of the new god. He is also the betrayer, the Judas, but not the killer. And that's the, the secret here, is that our, our good, quote-unquote, good apostle, Tibor, is in fact... The, the killer of the new god. He is the the messiah-making apostle. So they're both Judas, in a sense. Anyway, so he takes off on this journey, and immediately things start to go wrong. It's it's not great. He's he's not good with rocks. There's there's a a bunch of trees in the road that fell over, and he has a hard time with that. And then he gets stuck in a rut because he has no arms and no legs. He can't really just like get up and get his cart out of the the uh, the rut that he's stuck in. But along come the twenty or so children of the new god, and they discuss not only getting him out of there, but the catechisms of the new god. And he teaches them a lesson as he's on the road and they get him out of his rut and take him to the great, what is it? The great sea, the big sea, the great sea, the great sea. He is a, he must confront the great sea and, and pass by this weird psychotic auto fact, uh, that has sort of lost its mind, but is, is, a is a, a, is an obstacle on his course to the new god. And he he confronts it sort of easily with a with a gun. I mean, like what are you going to do? You just hey, you're asking me questions and uh, I'm just going to shoot you. So that that works out for him. And he moves on and he meets some of the coolest people in the book, which are the lizards, the lizzies. They in this future, in this post-apocalyptic future, almost all animals have gained the uh, ability of speech and uh, sentience. They are they are self-aware. They know what they 
they they are basically people of a different sort. Uh, so he is he he comes across these lizzies and and bugs that can also talk, and also these roly poly guys that are sort of like dogs with ostrich legs, and I can't remember what they're called, but anyway. They guide him to another autofac, who is insane, as autofacs tend to be apparently in this world, and they he is he is uh, trying to get lube for his tire for his the bearings on his tire, which are not working well. They're dried out, not rolling properly, etc. etc. And at that point is when we find out that he's being followed by our second apostle by Pete Sands, whose goal is to prevent the first apostle from from finding the new god and taking his picture by by scheme or by murder. But he's not clear if he can do murder. So what happens to Pete is that he meets a man on the road as he is confronted by the great sea and about to die. And that man, we believe, as the well, is a hunter. We believe he is just a hunter on the road to find our man Tibor as well. So there's a connection there, and we think, oh, okay, this guy is uh, going to show us the ropes. Like, he's actually got some knowledge of things. He's actually, like, got his shit together, kind of. He's, he's He knows how to live in this world, unlike these religious people and these crippled people that are in, in in a bad way because they're not only their naivete but their physical inability makes makes the world a harsher place. So uh, Tibor gets uh, stuck again after confronting the crazy auto fact outside of a town he believes outside of a town and because the Blue Jay told him to go to the town, and the Blue Jay never shows up again, just like a Blue Jay. <laughs> if you know anything about Blue Jays, they are not the nicest birds in the world. They are, are very mean. Uh, so he's stuck on the road, believes he's going to die. Uh, a dog that was offered to him earlier shows up, and we're like, what? Oh, the, I guess he did get the dog? And then we find out in a bit why he got the dog. So Jack Scold, our hunter, and Pete Sands start traveling together. And they are both looking for Tibor. And they both have different goals when they find Tibor. One is to kill the new god. One is to prevent Tibor from seeing the new god. So that's the goal. What happens is in the messianic tradition is that the new god sacrifices himself by killing the dog and forcing Tibor to kill him. Pete is the witness who witnesses the new god's death and keeps it a secret. And later they find the old body of the new god, which they is a lie, but still counts as a part of the Trinity. And they take the picture. Tibor gets what he wants. 
and also Pete gets what he wants in in his his I guess original sin of of deception. And then there's also this uh, crazy person who is the daughter of the new god, and in a in a sort of backwards way, she's the daughter of the new god, and she sees the Holy Ghost and becomes healed. And I'm not going to tell you what the the Lizzies say to her because we're going to save that for later because it's awesomely wrong. <laughs> uh, but she becomes healed and she becomes the the newest apostle of the new god. And so it's the religion that takes over the world is the the servants of wrath. Christianity is put in its place finally. But we are now worshiping a someone that is is considered is it worse than Himmler or worse than which I, I Eichmann I can't remember which. Well, I kind of think Himmler's the worst. If you're worse than than the worst uh, Nazi, is basically how this new god is described. I, I I didn't mention the worm, but the worm needs to be mentioned in this. the The worm is basically the coolest villain in anything I've ever seen. So that's it. That's the story, basically. All right. Well, you'll have to expand on your your worm theory a little bit later. Oh my god, that worm! That worm freaked me out. <laughs> All right. So I'll give you guys a preview on um, the the themes that we're going to hit are who wrote what and PKD isms, Christianity, world building, Trump like figures, um, and there's only I only had one. What the fuck. Uh, uh, in this book, which is good for an old book. So there's um, all kinds of fun PKD-isms. We've talked about that a little bit um, already. Um, well, I'd, I'd, I'd like to start with the Great Sea. Yeah, the, let's do that. Sea. I mean, that's a hell of a character right there. The Great Sea I, starts I, I on... I did read the story, and it's a hell of a character. I mean, like, yeah, you would want that in this post-apocalypse, right? You would yeah, um, I reread the story this week. Um, Brett, did you read? Have yes, you read I, the, did. Uh, yeah. I did. I um, did, and I had not read the story before. Uh, okay, my uh, edition, and shout out to Norwich University Library, which has Kreitzberg Library, which had this sitting on the shelf. I just nice. went there and got it. My <laughs> wife could not believe that I actually got a book out of a library instead of insisting on owning it. <laughs> so um, the um, it's interesting because it is hell of a character, but in the novel, it's a very different character for openers than not, and for the avatar of uh, the big C in the novel is female. Mm -hmm. And that was not the case there. And also, both times characters encounter the big C, the characters prevail, right? They're not okay. uh, they're, they're not these uh, post-apocalyptic fallen back into a more primitive state uh, standing in awe, which is why I thought that when uh, Tibor, and this is one of the inconsistencies in the book or maybe I just wasn't reading carefully enough when Tibor was asking the questions of the big C and there are these very kind of basic uh, you know why is the sky blue why does the rain yeah. fall uh, that sort of thing 
And uh, I was just wondering about that compared to some more, much more sophisticated things he says uh, later on in the book. But yeah, I mean, it's this, it's absolutely the story. Yes, uh, it is. The big C. It absolutely, but it is, you know, repurposed for mm-hmm. uh, for the novel. Um, it is cool to see how he repur- repurposed it. Now, that comes down to the question: Did Zelazny repurpose it? Or was it Phil's idea for Zelazny to repurpose it? Who knows? Mm. We'll never know. We'll but never know. yeah, but it, it, we know that Zelazny wrote these introductions to 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 various short story collections of PKDs over his life, and that he was a fan of his. So he was probably a fan of the story. So it's mm-hmm. possible that Zelazny chose to use that pastiche from one of his old stories on his own. It's All right, well, well, who, who wrote the worm? Tell me who wrote the worm. That's what I want to know. Well, uh, I mean, again, the, the, uh, the, the reference, the Zelazny reference point for me for these concerns is still his uh, story, Damnation Alley, because not only is it a post-apocalyptic landscape, but it is a post-apocalyptic landscape filled with uh, weird mutated creatures. Okay, so uh, who are mutated animals from animals? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. It's so, definitely the last. That is okay. Yeah, yeah. I don't remember if any of the animals were talking, but uh, I could see Zelazny coming up with the with the giant worm. I mean that that character was so psychotic and and, and so twisted that. I mean, the, the the whole idea of someone that's trapped in a one place, while while someone's spitting poison on top of them, mm-hmm. is just so it's yeah. disturbing. That mm-hmm. I really I really enjoyed that part. And mm-hmm. Dick does have a tendency to write really good horror. So I was inside curious, these other stories. Yeah, you know, if, if that was a which which person mm-hmm. wrote that. Uh, again, it could be there's, um, you know, the the um, imprisonment of some of the indigenous aliens in Lord of Light uh, has resonance of, of what you're talking about. Okay. Uh, of, uh, and there is a lot. One thing that I tried to talk about in my book that maybe I think is under commented on is that there is a lot of violence in Zelazny's work, and it's not just you know uh, elegantly staged sword fights either. <laughs> there, you know, he has a lot of stories that deal very directly with issues of pol- of uh, political terrorism, and uh, so it's something something weird and violent um, that is not contradictory to. <laughs> Something that Zelazny might do now, whether or not he actually was responsible for that figure in the book, again, who knows? Well, one thing that's different about the Great Sea in the novel as opposed to the short story is that we know who created the Great Sea in in mm-hmm. the novel because mm-hmm. um, uh, Lufel or Luf or uh, however we're gonna Luftoffel, Luftoffel, mm-hmm. yeah, Carlton. Let's just call him Carlton at this point. Um, he, well, that's why I use the new god instead of using the name. Yeah. So our our god of wrath, like part of his, he created the great sea as a part of of of, of all this 
of the smash and everything that went on. Now, one thing that I think is really interesting about this, and this is where this is very, very PKD. Now, if you consider that when he started writing this, he started writing it in 1964, a nuclear war that happened in 1982 is kind of far off. But when you publish the book 12 years later, it's not so far off. Um, this, in my mind, cements this and the Martian time slip thing cements to me that Dick is almost more of a surrealist than a science fiction writer because the dates, they matter to him in some weird way. And we'll get to that, to, to why I think that is. But at the same time, Dick has a reasoning for this that's that's pointed to in the divine madness of Philip K. Dick, which is the psychological look at, at, at him. But um, at the same time, it's just it, it's weird because like the rational brain goes, there's no way a war could happen this quick that that would have evolved animals that talk and the radiation would make these changes. The reason why is is and PKD when we talk about this convention in 1977 in France, the war happened in 82, right? The war happened in 82. Yeah, yes. and we're 90 years displaced from that. So, did he mention the actual date? 90 years? Okay. He, 90, he does I say that. Uh, 90 years once, but okay. I, I think mean, I missed that's that. Also very confusing because some of the characters, uh, like the. It's, it's almost biblical in that sense that some of the characters have that sort of Methuselah uh, longevity and others are are descendants, you know, mm -hmm. that, that there's that, that dichotomy of, of Luftafel living for so long without aging, really, and, and other people being, you know, so removed that they don't even remember how rainfall, why rainfall. So right, it's a it's a mm -hmm. it's interesting. I don't know. I don't know if it's in today's standards. I don't know if that would would stand up because people love their reality and hate hate things that are fantastic like that. So well, what I was gonna say is that that 1977 convention in France, one of the bombs that Phil dropped that kind of shook everything up was when he said that that his novels are not fantasy novels. He said that they're um, depictions of other worlds that he's seen yeah. in, in these revelations. And that, um, <laughs> and we don't know how much he was playing around with this where he was just trying to like cause a scene, but he literally... Well, he sure did play it serious. <laughs> yeah. So a lot of people think the reason why he refused to move the dates of Martian time slip enough that he went to a different publisher was because he was thinking in one of these visions that in this other world in 1994, this happened. And so the date, it was important to him that it happened at this time. So these dates that he has in these books may not be as random as we think, because in his envisioning of these stories what do you think that he followed a, a particular timeline i think in his mind he did yes is what i'm saying i don't know whether they're they're real or not but i'm adding that to evidence of the uh combined pkd universe so just so you know 
Okay. Well, you can add it to that evidence. But <laughs> but just to know that that 1977 conference, that's one of those things. And I, I just think that the dates here, we've got to start looking at the dates under that that frame of mind, I think, is, is just basically what I'm saying. And, and specifically, and we talked about this in the Flow My Tears episode because Flow My Tears is the one that he most – commonly refers to as being like this that one and and man the high castle are ones that he talks about as having kind of seen this other vision of this other world so but what's funny is he may be thinking that and roger zelazny perfectly rational science fiction writer yeah didn't like he's just telling a story so you know it, it I don't know if it, at any point, but at this point, I don't think he's going to step on Phil's toes because Phil started this. So I don't think, like, if I was Roger and mm-hmm. I was going in to finish this, I'm not going to be telling I him, like... I don't know. As, as, you, you guys are writers. You, you you know, you don't care about toes at all. You're going to write what you're going to write. Well, so. I think this is a different dynamic as far as, like, Phil... He looks up to Phil he, as a writer, and Phil creates Is that necessarily book. true? I mean, is that... Is that everything? Everything I have seen that Zelazny said about Philip K. Dick was laudatory, and yeah. and admiring. Yeah, but but and respect is not necessarily respect. Well, true. Well, you know. yeah, yeah. I can see that, but I think uh, I would, um, I would. Again, it's impossible to say, but I yeah. think David, you were saying earlier, your sense of Zelazny's awareness that this is like uh, this is. Uh, uh, Philip K. Dick's story, and he's really, um, you know, um, not exactly a hired hand, but kind of, you know, and yeah. it's, uh, and so I think that he, well, I think also it's um, the level, uh, mm-hmm. as I say, Zelazny was a very pragmatic writer who got more and more pragmatic, some argue quite entirely too pragmatic uh, as he went through his career. You know, into particularly into the 1980s, I can easily see him say, "Okay, well, this is how we set up, and I'm, you know, going to I'll make it my own." But um, I think that uh, I come back to the fact that, as we were talking about earlier, it just took them so damn long to finish it, and it was just obvious, uh, you know, that if you're a working writer and you're right, also, and you're writing, they deliver. I mean, as uh, certainly. People love to classify writers. Sometimes I think the only two classifications that mean anything are the ones who write to pay the mortgage and the ones who don't. Yeah, right. And <laughs> Zelazny and Dick and Zelazny were both writing to pay the mortgage. And so I think that that pro- uh, probably was um, was uppermost um, uh, in his mind, which does not mean he wasn't trying to bring as high a level of craft to it as he did. He was always... Um, you know, and also always wanting to try, Zelazny always wanting to try new things. You know, he would talk about a book of his own that people maybe didn't care for. Well, I learned a lot writing that. So I think he would see fitting into Philip K. Dick land right, as, right. A, cha- right. as that, a challenge. That, that, that yeah, yeah, as a challenge, as an artistic, um, you know, test, sort of. Right. So the next. The next theme I've got is Christianity, and there are three th- three parts where the Christianity I thought was really interesting and worth talking about, and I'm interested to hear what you guys, you know, what came to your mind on this. But the first one was the scene 
or uh, on page 52, which is very early in uh, Zelazny's um, taking over, where there's the whole during when Pete's talking, Pete and Abernathy are talking. They're talking about the idea that you're going to have to give up drugs for Christianity. Hmm. <laughs> and um, sounds very Christian. Hmm. Yeah. And um, so it's it funny because, like, there's that kind of debate about, you know, like, well, maybe I don't have to give up drugs. Maybe I, hmm. maybe I can keep using drugs. And, and, and give up sex. <laughs> can I give mm-hmm. up something else and then keep doing the drugs? And, and, and I thought this was a very funny scene. And, mm-hmm. um, and uh, I, I, it was one of the only time, or one of the earliest times where, like, what is a Christian, what isn't a Christian is actually word for word kind of debated in the story. Mm-hmm. So I thought mm-hmm. it was a, mm-hmm. as far as far as, cause I think the, the knowledge of Christianity being important to the writing of the book was overblown. And, and I think here's one of the few times. He is the antagonist, is he not? Well, he is not a, a, um, not an active. He's not a particularly sympathetic character until you get no, no. to the end, and and of course there's poor Father Handy who just kind of disappears, um, yeah. you know, in the course of telling the story. But but I think it is a very interesting scene because in my reading it, uh, it even wasn't even so much about uh, you know what was foregrounded for me was not even so much the Christianity but just a depiction of the dynamics of addiction. Mm-hmm. That that is how an addict behaves. Well, maybe yeah. I can do this or what do that. Tr- trust yeah. me on this. You know that sort of wheedling negotiation. You know, and this desperate need to to hold on. Yeah, you uh, can, to hold you on can to watch things. Any of those those shows about uh, addiction, and you'll see them right, right. their way out of it. So. Yeah, which depending on what direction you're coming from is not necessarily that disconnected with issues of Christianity. I mean, you know, religion yeah. is the opiate of the masses. Right. So Exactly. Um, it's just another drug. Yeah. Sorry. I'd open the, open the door for the dog. Mm-hmm. So, uh, uh, yeah, so I I thought that the whole addiction thing was interesting, too, and, but... But that was the, it no longer plays a part. Right. Right. Yeah. And that kind of disappears, too, as you get further on into the book, is that Pete doesn't, you know, if they've set him up as as it being some major sacrifice to to lose the drugs. And then as he's pursuing Tybor, maybe I'm misremembering, but it's like that just kind of went away. Yeah. You know. Yeah. I I think that's part of uh, Zelazny's um, influence is that it's. I, I mean, Dick does this all the time, is just drop storylines. But I think in this case, it, it became about doing the, the, the story mm-hmm. instead of concentrating on all these side issues and and the, the battle between the drugs and Christianity and that, and that kind of thing. It became more about, let's get this journey underway. Let's get to mm-hmm. the interesting part, the meat of the book. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, and that's why it fell away in this case. Mm-hmm. Right. Now, one of the next scenes for me that really addresses the Christianity is on pages 84 and 85 of the Mariner edition, and that's the basic catechisms um, scene. And what's interesting here is that that when 
Well, now these are the basic catechisms of uh, the the wrath religion, not the mm-hmm. not Christianity. Right, right. But um, I think that these catechisms, and it's funny because it connects really quickly there to um, the Great Sea, and that's one of the first times where the Great Sea really becomes a part of the story as well here. Mm-hmm. And um, also it's the page where in with the seventh of the catechisms that the title of the book is first mentioned, the um, Deus Irie, um, okay. and w- that which makes up the divine plan. So mm-hmm. it's the first time that, um, you know, because um, the whole, like, you know, worshiping of of the wrath figure and that the divine plan, that the mm-hmm. wrath and the greats and the smash were a part of the plan. At least that's how I mm-hmm. took it. Yeah. Um, and and so like I think that this is kind of a really important part. What are they saying about this religion, which is this twisted version of Christianity that worships the the end of the world? Um, and we'll come back to that when we talk about like Trump-like figures, because what what I really think is interesting about this book and the reading that that, that I had reading it in 2021 is this idea of worshiping people who are destructive figures, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, is this part of the mission statement of the book here on page 84 in, yeah. in the catechisms? Because that's one of the things that I thought of when I was looking. Because part of my process is I read the book, I highlight it as I go, and then when I'm setting up these notes for the show, I read through all the highlighted parts again. And this book hit me much harder when I was going through it the second time and when I was analyzing some of these parts, which happens a lot. But this scene didn't mean much to me when I read it the first time. But when I went back and read it the second time, I realized how important it was to the book. I had the same experience uh, of it standing out to me more, rereading it for uh, for our conversation. Uh, it it was very resonant of Zelazny to me because there's a, a great little sequence in his novel Creatures of Light and Darkness uh, where he offers what he calls the agnostics prayer that is this very ritualized statement of agnosticism. So that kind of at least mimicking of uh, ritual, sort of call and response ritual, is something that I, I, I could very much see hmm. uh, Zelazny doing. And yeah, I mean, the thing is, it's a death cult. Yeah. It is, uh, it's a death cult, and that's uh, one of many accusations that has been leveled against Christianity in general and certain kinds of uh, apocal- more even more apocalyptically inflected versions of, of Christianity. Mm-hmm. There, It's not just a Manichaean duality. It's not just the light and the dark, good and evil. It's like, you know, this destruction is all part of God's plan. Now, what's missing to me out of this is a promise of an afterlife. I mean, you kind of get that in the last part, in the last bit of the book. Uh, but it's not at this. It's not at this point. I mean, there's not. Again, unless I have just forgotten something, uh, the presentation of Christianity in this book does not really, um, you know, go, seem to offer that. Well, 
the world sucks and you're going to die and it's going to hurt a lot, but you will be uh, in heaven afterward and everything will be okay. It seems to be saying, well, the world sucks and you're going to die and it's going to hurt a lot and, uh, you know, praise God. That's yeah, and right, that's, that's I, a very I, specific take on it. That's why I look at this as a, a as sort of a Bible. Is they're they're creating their own Bible, these two mm-hmm. men, the, you know, Salazni and Dick, in in the fact that they're they're doing a messianic tale. They are they are creating a, a mythos of of a Messiah of of the, you know, when he com- shows back up at the end as the spirit. And cures the daughter. That is definitely a a, a Jesus tale, right? It's the mm-hmm. same sort of story, and and that's why the the that's where the afterlife comes in. You know, is that yeah. sort of it, it's not taken as a literal. Uh, they they need to tell us these things. They show us mm-hmm. these things. Mm-hmm. It's kind of a restore, almost a restorative justice approach to, yeah. um, you know, the the afterlife, and it's also very much in contradiction to that, um, you know, quite astonishing passage where Tybor has the vision of Carlton, right? You know, yeah. and as the as the true god of wrath, mm-hmm. right? Well, and then there's this part on page um, one seventy seven where they talk about um, a false god, false religion, you know, um, and one of the characters says, what I'm getting at is the fact that we Christians would not be overjoyed at seeing uh, Lufal actually represented in the mural, in the mural which, um, and, and it's funny too, because one, one of the half words I, we didn't mention earlier was the merch, the, <laughs> the, 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 the church mural, Mm-hmm. Um, which was which was a funny one, um, but yeah, I think. So, do you guys think overall? And I know you kind of con- both kind of said this in one way or another, but overall, is this PKD and Zelazny like kind of? Um, this is just this novel is just a critical look at like Christi- modern Christianity, right? That's what this is well, overall. I, I think it's more about them creating a new Christianity more than it is a, as an indictment of current Christianity or anything like that. Yeah, it feels like they're using Christianity, like the nuts and bolts of Christianity, to build their own religion upon it. Kind of like yeah. Larry was saying earlier, it, it, I certainly didn't get a scathing indictment uh, against Christianity. It's more like this is how it is. Here, but we're just kind of using this as a roadmap to build our own religion for this book. Yeah, I mean, there is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and again, I come back again to uh, that chapter 18, you know, where uh, the young woman is, is cured mm-hmm. and the uh, spirit of uh, Carlton is essentially, um, it, well, he's not evil, you know, at least no. at that, at that no, he's point. Gonna, he is the, uh, the Holy Ghost. Right, right. He's the, the the Holy Ghost, and so there is that um, moment of redemption. And I think that that to me is what, what I 
have always valued in the work of, of uh, Philip K. Dick that I've read is this notion of human frailty and human uh, and that we've so, uh, and the idea of the necessity of just trying maybe you fail but trying to be decent uh, to, to other people. Well, what's funny too about Carlton is when you look at what his name means um, in German, the uh, Luftwell or whatever it is. Uh, yeah, it means it's a German combination of air and devil, right? Which, I mean, you might as well have named the character like you know, Devil Bomb Guy, like you know, <laughs> as far as like if, if it was in English, but. You know, so because he was the ex-chairman of the Energy Research and Development Agency of the United States, that was his job beforehand, and mm -hmm. so he's connected. He's basically, to the guy that had his his finger on the button, right? And what and wasn't the bomb the um, uh, wasn't it an air blast uh, bomb mm -hmm. that it, it wasn't just you know it didn't hit the ground and blow stuff up that it just detonated and yeah, yeah. Uh, wiped uh, wiped everything, everything out, out. <laughs> yeah right and so building on the last section where we were talking about Christianity and and building on this whole the servants of wrath as a group and talking about them a little bit more. Um, I think like a huge the the earliest time in the PKD draft that really kind of makes or expresses what the point is is on page 19 of the Mariner draft where for the servants of wrath did sin consist of what did sin consist of the weapons of war one naturally thought of the psychotic and psychopathic cretins in high places and dead corporations and government agencies now dead as individuals. The men at drafting boards, the idea men, the planners, the policy boys, the PR infants, like grass their flesh, certainly had been, there had been sin at what they had done, but without not, but without knowledge. Uh, God of the old sect uh, um, had said that about his old murderers. So this is like, he's, he's kind of making like a big political statement right after he first on page 18, like one page earlier, he first identifies their ideology of the servants of wrath. So it was, it's early in the story too, you know, that that we get introduced to a lot of these ideas. And um, see, that's a, I'm having a fundamental disagreement. Is that the, in my head, is that the, the story doesn't match what they say. So. The actual uh, servants of wrath as a religion doesn't exist until the end, when when there's the ascension and the healing and all that stuff, and the and that's that's what makes the true religion. So what we're seeing is a false religion become a true religion, just as Christianity sort of came about, you know, as they they. They pulled in elements from, uh, you know, from the east and from the west and from, from uh, paganism and that sort of thing, and and created their their religion out of this amalgam of different religions. Well, and I think I one of the as the fundamental, you know, no matter what they say about 
the the god of wrath or uh, the religion of wrath is it, it doesn't matter until all those elements come together at the end and i think that's the best part about the book is that we're we get to see the 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 story of the religion unfold as as they are trying to uh, create it intellectually it unfolds physically so uh, that's how i see it i don't know if anybody sees it the same way as as that well there's also the lizard farmers who worship the dawn um and oh that's that's a hilarious thing but remember the lizzie at the end becomes a disciple so right mm -hmm. But what I think is interesting all is those, all those different the bug religion and of uh, the Volkswagen and I think that was hilarious as a as a as a running gag throughout the whole thing all the different religions that was really good yeah and I think that that's maybe something to consider with the novel is that in addition to you know offering this take on Christianity or this development of this new religion that what is present at every level is the religious impulse, mm -hmm. is the impulse to religion, the impulse to worship, the impulse to a spiritual or transcendent, you know, uh, faith-based explanation. Yeah. yeah, and that in itself is not always the case, you know, in classic science fiction. I mean, I recently... Um, uh, I have uh, reread uh, Arthur C. Clarke's Childhood's End, and it's almost like, uh, I don't know, maybe it's kind of charming, but just the degree to which he just says, well, once we have a way of knowing what really happened in history <laughs> with the overlords, time machine, TV things, then that will religion obliterate will religious faith. Yeah, that, religion that will just go thing. away, <laughs> and I'm like, uh, no. But uh, I think that I think that that's something. I think that's something that Dick understood very deeply, and that Zelazny, at I don't know how deep it was with him, but certainly but he played with also it. understood. He played with. It was another tool in the box. Yeah, it so, was another tool in the box. And this leads me to think about Maze of Death, because here's the thing. Um, you know, I recently got into an argument with um, um, another a fellow dickhead who like really was bothered by the fact that we did publishing order versus the order that they the books were written and was like <laughs> very critical, saying, like, you guys should have done all the 50s mainstream novels. And I was like, well, but I think here, this is a time where we can look at the publishing order being a thing, because even though PKD started this idea in 1964, he wrote a whole book about a made-up religion and Maze of Death between right. here and there. And I, I don't know, and I'm wondering what Anthony's thoughts are, because I know you were kind of a, a, a fan of that one as far as, or maybe it was Galactopi Healer more, but, um, but like, did he do a better job? with inventing this made up religion in this in that VR situation with Maze of Death than he did here. I don't know. But I, I kinda like as far as like making up in a religion, I like what he did here with Zelazny a little bit better, even though I think Maze of Death I might have liked more overall. Hmm. But I think as far as just tackling this idea of this creating false, a religion. Creating yeah. a religion 
and what it means, I think that point was made better in this book. Does that make sense? So, I don't know. But um, I don't. I don't know if it's creating a new religion. I think it's it's much like the Latter Day Saints, and that might be why they set it uh, partially in Utah or started it there. It's basically this is a new Messiah. This is the new Jesus that they did in this book. So it's 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 a little bit different from Maze of Death, but what do you think, Anthony? Wow, was there a question for me somewhere in there? Yeah, um, <laughs> uh, do I think that they did it better here? Let me let me just re- re- repeat it so I'm I'm understanding it more. Uh, do I think that the they cre- the creation of religion is better in this book than in A Maze of Death? Yeah. Yes, because in A Maze of Death, it turns out that they're just living through this simulation. Which is just a rehashed version of I in the Sky, basically. Right. And here they kind of go for it, whereas in A Maze of Death, Dick does that turn, and it's like, oh, JK, it was just, you know, not real. (laughs) He does really just Um, hint at it, right? But but going back to what I I said before, I think that this book is more consistent with what it's doing than many of his other books. Yeah. Uh, so so yes, I, I do think it's 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 done better here. So um, did anybody else see the the? Am I the only one that saw the the, the Donald Trump thing? Like because yeah, I I saw you 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 said something about Donald Trump or Trumpism. I think it has a lot to do I with the I fact that we live in this world right now, and you read it during this current time. <laughs> but I think that that's. But that's a so thing, where you know? where yeah explain that where is the the Trump connection there? Okay, so because you know this whole death cult thing where we see like all these people who like you know refuse to get vaccinated because Trump you know, because they think that they're being a right they're being that's the right wing position to take, and even though like. Trump they just got, don't want to turn into transforming satellite dishes, David. Come on, man. 5G. Right. Well, it, but <laughs> what I'm saying is, is that you've got that. You've got these people that are willing to like try to overthrow the election. They won't listen to reality. They they've been shot down in every court they've been for. They they refuse to accept reality. That they're they're following this guy right and. You know, it's funny because, like, Trump said, like, I'll be right there with you. And then, like, hundreds of people got arrested and now over 600 people have been indicted in their involvement in the Capitol. And so when I read this and I was seeing, like, all these people worshiping, this guy pulled the trigger, blew up their world. And then there's Mm -hmm. all these people that are worshiping him anyways, regardless of what they know. They know that he built the great seat. The belief is that a god, only a god, can destroy the world. Yeah. Well, that that goes. Belief. And that, uh, I mean, that goes back to Job. I mean, what is God's message to Job? Did you create the universe? I don't think so. Yeah. So you know, don't 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 mouth off to me. And that's. you know, but no, no, David, I take your point on that because, again, it is the idea of the death cult, the idea of embracing something that is embracing forces that inevitably will lead to your own destruction. Yeah. If, yeah, in and fact, I, and they I know have we... not already done that. But that's also the dichotomy of the book is that at the end, it's about curing. Mm-hmm. 
yeah. and healing and not about destruction. So even uh-huh. though it's the god of wrath, you know, the the god of destruction, it, it it ends up being a healing force. And the very end, we keep we are talking about the end of the book, but the literal last part of the book is the chapter nineteen. That's what I call the Victorian Coda, letting us know where everybody else. I I keep coming back to that because I've been accused I've been accused of abusing that device in my own fiction. So uh, you know, be that as it may. Uh, but that also says that it was all that it was all um, bogus. You know that it would that he got famous. No, that he got famous and even Tybor got famous and even revered for something that simply so was not accurate. You know, that yeah, was not I, true. And I apologize if at Q is Vallis on Twitter has decided that we're a bunch of libtards and now they're whoa, going whoa, away. Whoa, 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 whoa. Back, back up. Back up. Q is Vallis? I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Okay. I was, I was well, the thing is, see, this is the world we live in is that I immediately assumed there was, in fact, somebody online who was saying yeah. <laughs> I also thought that yeah. too though because yeah. I'm conditioned to think that now. <laughs> no, that was just a joke, but Well, that's what you get for getting vaccinated. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, um but I mean obviously my my um but I it, think so that's the difference, David, is that you know, Trump has no redeeming quality. And I don't think so you're... there is no redeeming quality in this guy. It, he ends up having a redeeming quality after death. Hmm. So I, I, I there's no redeeming. Know. There's no redeeming quality in the incarnate Carlton. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But he can only death. he can only have this redemptive episode uh, as a, as a, a or as the last name I put it as a shade. You know, right. as as the, a uh, the as girl a even figure. says. You know, the sickness has been removed from you. Mm-hmm. Whatever was afflicting mm-hmm. him is now removed, and he is pure, and that's mm-hmm. why he is right. spirit like he is. I don't right. think you're wrong, David. I, I just don't think I saw it that way, mostly because I, I'm, I'm so used to these type of lines being drawn between you know the destructive death cult villains and the people who are trying to build a more morally sound, respectful society, etc. And so, like, I just don't... I didn't really drop Trump in there because it just did, you know, I just didn't. I'm used to this type of stuff in fiction now. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, well, you know, there was so many articles, like, during the 2020 election about how Octavia Butler, and rightfully so, foresaw Trump and the the Make America Great Again thing. Yeah. Rightfully so. But what I'm saying is, is I think... This novel is equally looking at some of that kind of death cult thing. I think it's mm-hmm. here in this this novel as well. Oh, absolutely. Um, I mean, I, I, it's funny you yeah. should say that. I just finished uh, covering Parable of the Sower in a class, and so it's very much on my mind. And with that particular novel, it isn't as you uh, with um, Desiree, you can't really go through and check things off the way you can in a in a genuinely uncanny fashion mm-hmm. with Power uh, Parable of the Sower. I mean, well, you know, the same, it, uh, yeah. the same being with Stand on Zanzibar. You look at 
John yeah, Bruner yeah. stand on Zanzibar, you can check off and be like, oh, right, school, right, right. school shootings. Right, and right. You, you can go through all the different things that that, that book did. And this, I'm not saying mm-hmm. this one is much more jumbled in it in its image and it's right and or it's, or or it's bug more Jack surreal. Barrett. Yeah, or bug Jack Barrett. You know, yeah, the, right. at least in terms of the the, the meat. Uh, landscape, but yeah, that, um, for people, that's uh, Norman Spinrad's Norman Spinrad's novel, Bug Jack Baron, a a a signature intervention in my adolescent mind. <laughs> I, <laughs> that book quite an impact on me when I was reading it when I was too young to read it. Oh, well, we're Spinradders around here, so we yeah. we, oh, we appreciate good, uh, good. we appreciate the reference. But, you know, I mean, that's the thing is I'm not saying this is a one-to-one, like, you can look at it. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. I don't no, know, it's maybe. like William, it's like, um, the, as was said of William Gibson and Neuromancer, it's not like he understood anything about how computers work, but he seemed to have this uncanny understanding of what they felt like. Yeah. And th- I think this may be a similar thing here, that there's a sense of this impulse all right, and the possible consequences of this impulse. Well, even if it's clearly in there. I, I mean, with all the different religions from the mm-hmm. bugs and the lizards and all the all the different things, you see that impulse everywhere. Mm-hmm. The worst yeah. impulse, the the higher power impulse, whatever you want. To mm-hmm. And I'll also throw in from the Zelazny side is that. Zelazny was never overtly political in his books, but, you know, particularly in the stuff he was writing in the 60s, whether it was Isle of the Dead or even Nine Princes in Amber, you can tell he's writing those books during the Vietnam, the escalation of the Vietnam War. And there are these references to wars, distant wars in foreign lands and young men being used as cannon fodder and, Hmm. you know, all of that. So... Even in I, the Amber that, stories. Oh, well, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, because there's one line where in the first Amber book, Nine Princes in Amber, the narrator Corwin of Amber is expressing some guilt when he's raising his armies from the Shadow Worlds to go after his brother who's usurped the, fo- the, the, um, uh, the throne. And he's feeling kind of guilty knowing that these people are, these guys are going to get slaughtered. And that you know, it's um, he's it's like, well, I, I'm going to do this, but I feel bad about it. You know, so there's at least some acknowledgement about uh, the horrors of war and um, on one of the wow. shadow worlds, the morality and uh, of it. And it's just, um, you know, you can historicize um, that. I'm, I'm going to mute myself for one second. Sorry. Well, um, it's OK. Um, as far as. I, when I was look, I did want to say too that I've looked at my list, um, and almost all like the different things without bringing them up specifically, we kind of touched on all the things that are in my notes. So we've gotten mm-hmm. to a lot of them. Some mm-hmm. of the, um, but I do want to ask you guys what you thought very specifically about as far as the writing goes and the world building. I think the world building in this book is pretty good. Um, and some examples that I had were, um, I thought the description of the bombs early on, page 13 of the Mariner edition, uh, the fact that the radio station came out of Salt Lake, some little tiny details like that were really well done. And so I think 
in in that sense we it, and then once we get to like all like the lizard farmers and the the birds and the different things i think that's where you really see the strength of two great sci-fi minds like working together is 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 in some of these moments that really show some some really cool inventiveness in, in the book and that's something that i really didn't well i I'd, I'd like to talk about uh your definition of world building uh, a little bit because I, we we understand that they're creating an environment, but it's not. I, I always use this example in Half Blood Prince by uh, J.K. Rowling, the Harry Potter book. Uh, she describes the cave that they go into for eight pages. It's just a description of the cave. So when you're talking about world building, what what exactly are you are are you talking? Well, see, I like subtler is is you know obviously overboard and unnecessary, but it still reads very quickly and is beautiful. But um, I will give you an example from page eighty-four. But um, I like simpler world building. I like when it's not an info dump of pages at a time. But that's not, uh, it's not necess- description is not necessarily info dump. I'm just saying. Okay, so on page 84, in another field, women uh, weeded by hand all moved slowly, stupidly victims of hookworm from the soil. They were all barefoot. The children evidently hadn't picked it up yet, but they would soon. He He gazed up at the clouded sky and gave thanks to the God of wrath for sparing him this. Trials of exceptional vividness lay on every hand. I thought that was great, great subtle world building. Just gotta say. Mm-hmm. So, is, is, um, I, am I just looking at the difference between literary world building and genre world building, or well, well there might be a distinction. There, a to, there might be a distinction to be made between world building and landscape building, and um, the landscape of this book is fabulous. I mean, it, in every sense of the word, I, I, I agree. That's one of the strengths of the book. If you're talking about a more comprehensive world building yeah um you know i what i would think of is so well what's going on east of the mississippi you know how are things (laughs) how are things in new york you know what what's going on there and they just understandably are concerned about that because they're focused on these characters in this in this place and the uh, the landscape of the book i i think is uh is quite memorable uh and also how the uh, char- how the characters function within the landscape, um, you know, but maybe a little bit, uh, but not un- necessarily the structure detected. of the world. Not, not necessarily all the things, and that's very Zelazny too. Again, to go back to the Amber series, this is not an original insight on my part, but it has been said that in Amber, we don't really have much of a sense of the physical landscape of uh, the world of Amber, that it's so focused on the doings of the royal family mm. that it, we don't get passages about, you know, how the plumbing works in the castle or anything or what's going on out among the people who aren't part of the royal family. So, uh, but again, the landscape uh, is is um, is there and how, how the yeah, characters react to definitely with David, I, if, if I can say what you appreciate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Another example would you just be. Just want to know the structure of where the story is, not necessarily like 
you know, what the plant life is like or, or what color the trees are in the forest as Tibor is passing through it or anything like that. So there's a part on page 87 where the Great Sea uh, says, Before the smash, there were no woods, only cities and farms, and men were clean-shaven. Many of them were clothing men. They were scientists. That was another scene of cool world building that I, that, that I would highlight. And the lizards talking about worshipping dawn. It's like, mm-hmm. it can seem like mm-hmm. a joke, but it's it's something that adds to the world and makes it more vivid and more lived in. And those are things that I really mm-hmm. appreciated in this book. Yeah. Um, I didn't. Well, I'm getting. Well, when I say it's story. a running gag, I mean, I'm, I mean specifically the, the Volkswagen, joke. But. Like, okay, so before we get know, into our final, the whole thought, worship thing has is very important to the book as well. So. Before we get into our final thoughts and how would we adapt this and all that, is there anything else I'm missing for themes or ideas that that any of you, like, wanted to talk about that things um, that, Brett, I. I, I was interested in the female characters, um, how they were depicted. That's a whole thing that you know is is very com- is very uh, complicated. But I was interested, uh, in particular, in the. Um, There's hardly uh, any this, women at all in this book. Uh, there are very yeah. I mean, it's sort of like. Um, the, uh, you know, uh, yes, you talk about women in Deus Array. Well, what women? I mean, they're not I, really. Uh, well, there, there is there is the boob that's described as chicken fat, which is like the grossest oh, thing in the book. Oh, okay. <laughs> I can't, I can't, I can't unhear that. Page fifty four. I know. Page fifty four. It's I there. Burned on my eyeballs. But <laughs> it's not just uh, me I, being vegan and no, like not liking no, that. No, it is not. It's awful. It is, it, it is awful. It is awful. It is an unpleasant um, image. It, it, it is an unpleasant image, and um, but uh, well, I think that like the distinction between Loreen and Alice, in particular, that Loreen is presented as being a, a smart and aware, and she's mm-hmm. hip to what's going on, and of course Alice is in the other, you know, that other. Let's <laughs> in the other uh, aspects of the book that's like well. Um, awfully sorry you did that, guys. Uh, is um, you know the way that her uh, her uh, her being mentally challenged is is described, and uh, and all of that. There's I'm waiting. There's a whole thing to be done with this book in terms of its representation of disability. Uh, you know, both with Tybor and uh, mm-hmm. and with Alice. So uh, I mean, I think that's something worth. Uh, mentioning, and I also don't want to. Um, uh, and uh, but there was one passage in the book, uh, just a single paragraph that really leaped out at me. And I, I the patch, I'm not sure what the pagination would be, but it's right before the scene that we mentioned earlier, where the Tybor has the vision of um, Carlton in as the the genuine god of wrath. But it's where um, it's the paragraph that begins. He thought then of a thought which had buffeted him for years, a picture of a creature, some kind of fairly small furred animal. uh, And the animal is selling things by the side of the road that nobody wants to buy. Right. And I thought I I just, oh, okay. Um, You know, that uh, that but that. 
Well, that means something, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. Very PKD, too. Very PKD. I love that paragraph. That's my favorite, probably my favorite, if if you, to pull out just a single paragraph from this book, uh, I, I'm i all about that. Well, I, I, I'd, like to, I'd like to think about the, or uh, discuss the, the lie at the end. Like, uh, is that the, the Judas moment that we're supposed to be seeing? Is that while while Pete knows that the God is real, he sees the God. He sees the God be uh, martyred, or, mm-hmm. or you know, and then creates the lie that becomes the truth. Is that I mean, are how are we supposed to look at that? I mean, that's the overall question. I mean, I have my own interpretation, but I'd like to know how you guys think that is supposed to be viewed. I do think I think the Judas connection is is a strong one, and it makes sense. They're trying to make analogies about Christianity. It, it, that would make sense to me. Yeah. But they're both kind of. Uh, I mean, both of those characters kind of share that Judas role. One is the actual killer. Mm-hmm. One is the lie that creates the the death. Yeah, yeah you I know, th- and I didn't think about it as clearly about who's what apostle and, and all that until you started talking about it. And then I was like, hmm, okay, I see that. And, and, and that's the cool thing about this book is that, like many of these books, they're ones that, you know, like, look, we've talked about how I've a lot of times grade up my star ratings when I go back the second time and look through a book. And, you know... In fairness, there's the I just finished reading it the first time, and then there's the I thought about it for a couple days rating. Sure. Um, and this is one that definitely I thought more about, as, mm-hmm. as, yeah. as especially because I knew. And look, if, would I do that if I wasn't planning on talking about it for two hours on a podcast? <laughs> Probably, Probably not. <laughs> no, uh, but I think I think that's a really important point, and it touches on what from my perspective it is really no is one noteworthy thing about this book is that you said that uh, Dick was talking about it's flying off the shelves in Portland but there isn't any getting around the fact that this book uh, from uh, for, was poorly received by critics I mean when I was looking for things I mean every of the both people who were um, that I found for my uh, for my book, and then a couple of things I encountered in doing a little poking around before uh, our conversation. Uh, th- there seemed to be a consensus is that this does not represent the best of either of these writers, mm-hmm. and it's kind of a hot mess, and it, it, it's <laughs> uneven. It doesn't really work. I mean, people had like, too high yeah, expectations. Yeah, I th- I think that's true. But what you're saying. They're like David, this genius that, and this genius are coming yeah, together, so uh, right, it's going to be right, crazy. right, right, right. I think that, um, and, and maybe that's a result of a reviewer reading a book once. You know, yeah. maybe this is the book, a kind of book that um, you have to come back to and look at again and and reconsider. Because again, I because people, I've, yeah, 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 people saw these two names on the cover. Right, they thought. Right, right. This genius and this genius working together, they right. didn't think one genius 
couldn't fucking finish it, and then the right. other genius said, "Let me give it a crack." Yeah, me give, right, right. Now you, know, you you tell me, was the Ganymede takeover before yes. uh, published before this? So yes. it was not the first collaboration for Philip K. Dick. It was, I'm pretty sure, the first collaborative novel that Zelazny published. He did a lot more after that. But uh, I but I think you're right. I think expectations were high. Two geniuses walk in a room. One great book walks out, and then they say, "Well, what's up? With, what is this? You know, we can't do it." But I freely admit that I got, um, I saw, found things in the book, uh, reading it this time, that I, I did not originally. Um, Anthony, do you have any final thoughts on on what happens in the story of Deus Ire? Ire. E-Ray? No. Okay. <laughs> so let's get in. Let's get into any thoughts. Well, nope. do you want my final thoughts, or do you want like? Does there? Well, you can start. You can start off our rating and final thoughts. Yeah. Yeah. Go for yeah, it. Yeah. So I can go first. Um, I think I'm gonna have to rate this book in two different ways. I want to look at it from a collaborative standpoint, and and, and through that lens, I think they did all right. I I don't. I, None of it seemed like, oh, this is definitely a PKD part, or, oh, this is the other guy who I obviously haven't read any of his standalone books, so <laughs> I can't really pinpoint exactly who did what. Uh, but having collaborated now with a, few, with a few authors, I think they did, I think, I don't think it's as much of a hot mess as maybe the critics panned it out to be. I, I, I thought, like I said a million times already, I thought it was fairly consistent to me. Um, and, and as a collaborative effort, I thought they did okay. For me personally, I don't really find books about religion all that interesting. Um, I tend to start reading a book that has a, like a lot of religious backdrop to it, and I, I get I just no, I'm just not interested. It's just not for me. Um, the oh, only, well, you have some books to look forward to here with the end of PKD's career. Um, <laughs> my, my 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 point being, you know. If, if I have in the past, which I have, because uh, I love A Canticle for Leibowitz, which is very obviously a religion. About religion, yeah. Uh, and about religion. Um, and I love uh, Paul Schrader's First Reformed, obviously very much about religion. Uh, but this one just felt kind of flat and shallow to me in that regard. So um, I would give it as a whole a three out of five. It's fine. It, it's, it's not a book I'll revisit. Three what? Three what? Three out of five. Three, three, three what? Three what? Oh, gee. Three incompletes out of five. God. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I'll take that one. <laughs> um, yeah, well, we have the same rating. I, I have uh, three out of five um, lizard farmers. Um, and I, I almost upped it to four after my second reading of it, but I think somewhere in the... You know, I think it's good, not super great. Um, I think it's, I definitely think it's a book that stands to deeper evaluation than than the surface, um, and that there's more going on, and that I'll probably write about it more in the future. Um, when you know, it'll be one that I'll come back and write about. But, but. Um, and I do think that the collaboration process is kind of one of the most interesting things is how these two titans of that era, you know, came to work together and just how different they were as human beings. <laughs> that, 
you know, Phil was going through two divorces in the time that this was going on and <laughs> having teenage drug dens in his house and, and, and Zelazny was working, at, you know, for the government, like, and had a day job. It's like, they could not have been more different as far as the life that they were, they were, they were leading. And so, and boy, to be a fly in the wall in that abandoned room at Baycon, mm, um, really seeing yeah. that, their conversation about doing this For would real. be really fascinating. Um, and I, you know, wish they had iPhones at the time to record it. <laughs> um, but they didn't. So unfortunately, we just have to imagine. So yeah, three out of five uh, lizard farmers. Um, Brett, do you want to go next? Um, I'm always reluctant to put those sort of quantitative ratings on books, but if we're doing that, I would say three out of five cows uh, is what uh, I will. We know we didn't talk about the cows, but you know, love no, we did. Uh, <laughs> which well, is love weird because they're pulling yeah. the wagon the whole. They're time. They're pulling yeah. the wagon the whole time, and to be honest, the first time I read it, it probably the rating probably would have been lower. Um, I think, but I think that. There's a it's a I've, it's a very interesting book. There is a lot of really good moments in it. While I may after rereading it and certainly after a conversation, you know, this is all raising my estimation of the book. I don't think the critics of the day were completely wrong, though. I part of me thinks that it would have benefited if one or the other of them had gone back and done a rewrite from start to finish, a final pass through this, because it does seem often disjointed. I know that the digressions that we talked about, I mean, look, what I just cited is my favorite paragraph in the book, is is an interior (laughs) monologue digression, (laughs) right? And that's what, you know, that's what Dick did. Uh, And that's part of the, uh, you know, the pleasures of the text, as the saying goes. But I really would have liked it if one of the other of them, and in pragmatic terms, it probably would have been Zelazny if he had had the time uh, to do it, is to go back in and do a final pass and just make it a little bit. The, the adjective I used in the my brief mention of it in the, my book was gnarled. And I think that there is a gnarled feeling to it, and I think that's part of what demands a second reading if you're going to get out of it everything that is there. Mm-hmm. Langhorn. All right, so I'm going to give it the highest uh, honor here of all four of us. That is a rare thing. <laughs> I give this one uh, 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 three and a half merches. <laughs> Because it, to me, I, I mean, I'm absolutely the opposite of Anthony on this. Is that I love religious stories. I've always enjoyed. I, first of all, I'm an atheist, so I, I'm not a big fan of religion in the real world. Uh, but I've read all the religious texts, not all, but most, and uh, I, I love stories about religion and and its. And it's uh, growth, it's change, it's, and I, I'd love to see this story about creating sort of a, a new branch of Christianity in, in a 
a fundamentally different way. To me, that was that was interesting to read. I love the the religious polemics of the the first forty pages or whatever it is. Um, you know the 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 journey was interesting with all the different mutated characters and and species and obviously that worm had a big effect on me it was a giant worm poisonous worm that was insane i mean to me that was incredible that was an incredible character and i saw it so vividly in my mind a big i i was thinking earthworm like pink big pink earthworm that could just bite your head off if it wanted to oh my god and uh and i i enjoyed i you know i I enjoyed all those aspects, and you know the the things that drag it down are are fairly obvious. I mean, it doesn't go deep enough. It doesn't go hard enough. Uh, the you know you, you you have this blasted out world. Go deeper. Go harder. But you know you, you can only say that after something's been written, right? You can't. Be, <laughs> yeah, it's it's hard to know how hard you need to go until you've already done the thing and it's out. Uh, so I, I agree that the critics are probably a little bit correct in in saying that it wasn't it wasn't a good representation of either either one of their works, but as a conglomeration, I, I thought it was fantastic. So that's my review. All right. So um, how would we do this as a film um, in Right. Yeah, I think you could do a post-apocalyptic movie about like a death cult is very doable, um, you know, and new religion. Um, I'm not gonna go too deep into how what, but, but I very few characters. Like you don't have to do too much, right? Yeah, I, I think that if if you were to do it as a film, I think that the entire until Tybor hits the road would have to be almost a prologue um, because uh, but if you did it as a limited series then you could linger on uh, the things that the author that the authors linger it on yep yeah and um, the way uh, you know I think you'd kind of ha- I think you'd have to update the great C a little bit like you couldn't have it be exactly like um, um, you can't have it be exactly the same because it's kind of 1952 mm-hmm. out of date, oh, yeah. that kind right. of thing. So you're going to update a lot of those things. Mm-hmm. Um, you might even make, I would maybe even do kind of like a climate, like temperature apocalypse versus That's true. war. And mm-hmm. then, but you wouldn't have to change any of the fundamental things about like the servants of wrath and like who's kind of like who created this world. Cause you could do a thing w- where like, you know, because there's, you know, environmentalists were fond of saying that, you know, the people who are destroying the planet have have names and addresses, mm-hmm. and 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 somebody who was really deeply involved in like these industries might be an interesting way to go for updating mm-hmm. this. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, you could have it be a bomb. And um, oh yeah, the all kinds of apocalypse. One thing that just entered my mind is going back to what we were saying about the absence of women. I think if you were to adapt it as either a film or a series, you would have to do something about that. And here's my suggestion. I think that instead of having in the movie or series, instead of having Pete 
follow Tybor, it should be Lorene. Mm. Send her, get her out on the road. Yeah. After him. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's good. No, I like that. Um, but as far as I don't, I don't know. Somebody who would do post-apocalypses pretty well. Um, somebody who has, who could do kind of like deserty, sandy things quite well. Maybe the, I liked what the Hughes brothers did with Book of Eli. So mm-hmm. maybe let's. I don't know. I'll pick them. So I thought it was a, a the whole time I was reading this. I was thinking of uh, I can't remember the name of the film, but it's the the really bad Andy Kaufman robot movie from like the early. I remember. I know what you're talking yeah. about, and I can't remember the name. But that's of sort it of how I saw this as as it unfolded. Was sort of that kind of level of a a movie, sort of campy but not intentionally campy. Uh, and uh, but that's that's just what I saw in my head. That's not what I would like to see in real life. Uh, but definitely, I would like to see Brian Blessed as Jack Scold. Like he would be the best. Just that boisterous, out there voice, or uh, anyone that could do that sort of big, loud thing. Uh, maybe a uh, Nick Offerman or something. <laughs> Nick Offerman. Okay. All right. <laughs> That's the yeah. that sort of a uber manly, but not a, but over the top style. So it's not hmm. it's not offensive. And yeah. other than that, I don't I don't care about this. Anthony, any thoughts on uh, doing this as a film? Or I like uh, Brett's suggestion about it being a, a limited, like maybe like a limited series or a TV show, because um, I think you would need to take the time to develop a lot of what they're trying to do. I, I, I mean, I, it might seem like the obvious choice uh, given the most recent movie that he did, but I would like to see Denny Villeneuve do this because um, he can do those those kind of more desolate, dead landscapes while at the same time when he needs to kind of show off the, the techie, more futuristic side of things, it really stands out. All right, so um, we're, uh, I think we're done with that. So the last thing we've got is Dick-like suggestions. Um, oh yeah, Shaka Khan. <laughs> uh, Anthony, do you have any dick-like suggestions this month? Nope. Um, I, um, go ahead, Brett. Yeah, I um, actually uh, am. I'm teaching a film class this semester, and I recently, for the first time in a long time, rewatched David Lynch's Mulholland Drive. Mm, and if you're looking for something that has, you know, again, uh, sets it up and then pulls the rug out and leaves you going, uh, what's happened? Uh, what's <laughs> real? What's not? Then there you go. The thing with Mulholland Drive is the second time you watch it, you feel like an idiot because you didn't get it the first time. It's all there. But mm-hmm. I didn't. I think it's so weird you don't get it the first time. Oh, it oh. is all there. It is yeah. all there. But I also they, recommend. Well, some of us don't get it the first time. <laughs> well, since we're talking about David Lynch, I also recommend his daily weather reports from LA are great. They uh, are. Yeah, I've heard about that. Oh, yeah. where, where where do I find that? Uh, he does it every day on YouTube. Oh, okay. Um, he so just type does... in David Lynch weather report and uh, yep, get yep. There. And then now you will watch them every day. <laughs> all right. Um, all along the way. Um, (laughs) 
but uh, yeah, so my dick like suggestion this month is, um, and this is an upcoming podcast on postcards, is the novel Machine Hood by S.B. Divya, who is a uh, Nebula Award nominated science fiction author. Um, she's from here in Southern California. And uh, machine, she's an expert in, um, she has a degree in neuro, um, neuroscience and artificial intelligence. So she's an expert and she wrote a novel that takes place in the waning days of the 21st century. And it's about a movement called Machine Hood who is, writes a 35 page manifesto for the rights of machines and starts a revolution. And um, the main character is a woman who is trying to expose that group and becomes more and more machine as the novel goes on. It has all kinds of PKD themes and issues, but it's a very, very modern science fiction novel, and I like it quite a bit. So, Machine Hood by S.B. Divya. Why are you smiling like that, Larry? What did I do? I just looked at the chat. Oh, he just if you finally. Didn't do anything. Um, but yes, yeah, so uh, Machine Hood by S. B. Divya is um, one of the best science fiction novels I read this year. From that's new, and um, so it's very good stuff. And yeah, uh, Larry, what video game are you going to recommend to us today? Well, I only have three or four. <laughs> oh, jeez. Uh, uh, a couple of mentions. Uh, there's a series out there called Killian and Maruda on TikTok. Uh, the music is kind of bad sometimes, but it's about a person that's trapped in a world where no one else lives. Uh, they might be trapped inside a computer simulation. We don't know, and we, we haven't found out yet. So this is an ongoing ARG. And I don't know if I... Uh, it's an unfiction story. Unfolding. I don't know if there's any actual ARG elements. But there is ARG elements in PB here, which is also a, a TikTok uh, ARG on Fiction's tale. And that that one is, is done. So you can watch that entire thing. You can watch both on YouTube. Uh, you don't have to have TikTok, because I certainly do not. The, the other one that needs mentioning is The Great Sea Game, which is more of a sort of a visual novel of the short story. You can find that on Steam. It's the story. <laughs> and that's that. But the big one for me is uh, the game that just came out about a month, maybe a month and a half ago, is Inscription by Daniel Mullen, Mullins. And if you don't know who Daniel Mullins is, he's the guy that did uh, The Hex and uh, Pony Island, which are, are both really, really good, intense, uh, fourth wall breaking games where the game sometimes reaches into your computer and grabs files from you and tell you things about your own life. Uh, they're, they're meta games. And Inscription is just the same thing. It has great uh, card game mechanics. And beyond that, it has all kinds of super secret 
ARG things, codes that you can figure out if you like to, a, a deep lore that goes back to a short game he made for uh, Newgrounds. It's uh, worth checking out. So do it. Check it out. Check out Daniel Mullins, all his stuff. All right. So um, I... Unless I'm wrong, but I believe the next book is is uh, that we're going to be covering is going to be a big one. It's going to be Scanner Darkly. Yes. So uh, not that I think that many of our listeners need a preview of what Scanner Darkly is, but that's your job, <laughs> Anthony, is is to uh, preview one of the big ones. Guardian Bob Arctor is a junkie and a drug dealer, both using and selling the mind-altering substance D. Fred is a law enforcement agent tasked with bringing Bob down. It sounds like a standard case. The only problem is that Bob and Fred are the same person. Substance D doesn't just alter the mind, it splits it in two, and neither side knows what the other is doing or that it even exists. Now both sides are growing increasingly paranoid as Bob tries to evade Fred while Fred tries to evade his suspicious bosses. In this dystopian future, friends can become enemies, good trips can turn terrifying, and cops and criminals are two sides of the same coin. Caustically funny and somberly contemplative, Dick fashions a novel that is as unnerving as is enthralling. I'm actually really excited because I like the the film adaptation, but I've never read the book, so this is in this in this reality, cops can be criminals. Wow, that's so different from real life. <laughs> Right. Uh, <laughs> what are you talking about, Larry? <laughs> um, well, yeah, you're in for a treat. I've read Scanner Darkly before, and uh, yeah, as a fan of the of the movie as well. But um, yeah, I'm really looking forward to rereading it. Uh, I will and, be shocked if my rating is low. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. You know, I I, uh, I had said before we started that there were many fellow K. Dick novels I have not read. I have read a scanner darkly, and yes, it's uh, it's something. Yeah, I, I thought I had read it. I, I don't think yeah. I have. Yeah, I mean it's been years, but I do remember being very impressed with the book. Yeah, I'm mm-hmm. excited. No, and, I, and I, admittedly, I read it at the time when when they announced the movie. I was like, well, I want to read this before I see the movie, and so I read it as recently as that. So I do love the movie. Uh, yeah. Yeah, so, um, yeah, and I know we're going to actually have to cover, we're going to actually have to watch that Confessions of a Crap Artist movie, so, <laughs> yeah, yeah, we'll get to it. I, I just, I, I haven't been watching movies lately. I've been so behind on reading that I've been catching up. So, Same uh, both, I, David. Yep. All right, so on that note, uh, thank you for listening, everybody. If you made it this far, you're a trooper, and, um, and, uh, oh, wow, that's quite a goodbye. Uh, but as we always say here, keep it paranoid. Stay paranoid. Paranoid. All right. Y'all.